The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. I like being out of my comfort zone. You know, I think the history of this company is like pun intended, very organic, right? Like I started a blog and then people started asking for consulting. I never planned to be a consultant. I mean, I thought I'll start this blog and like, I'll get some like cool interviews from it. And, you know, I'll learn some things. And, you know, here we are, like the blog is the brand. So it's not what I expected at all. So I think I've gotten very used to even before agritecture, just adapting, you know, and listening and being agile. It's a key part of who I am as an individual based on my upbringing and sort of what we have at the company. But definitely, I think you should be out of your comfort zone if you want to innovate or grow. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 6. Welcome back. If this is your first time listening, you are definitely in the right place. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. That around the world line resonates really strongly <laughs> with me late this evening or early into the next day. I'm losing track of the days. I am recording this live, not live, but recording this from Dubai. I'm in Dubai for AgriMe, courtesy of the team at uh, Cultivated for making that happen. And it's a very exciting experience. I'm here to connect with folks in the vertical farming space and see some familiar faces. I was pleasantly surprised to see Christine Zimmerman Lossel of the Association for Vertical Farming. She was past guest 51, and I'll be sure to include that in the show notes as well, meeting some new faces, including this week's guest, Henry Gordon-Smith. More on him in a second. And it's been a really great experience, really eye-opening for me to see this part of the world and see all the opportunities that are happening here in Dubai. I have a feeling I'll be back <laughs> because uh, there's just so much going on and so much that I'm looking to be a part of. So stay tuned for more developments, already planning new travel for events probably early next year. So as soon as I know more about that, I will let you know. In case you missed last week's episode, 
We spoke to Keenan Pinto, the CEO of NorDetect. It's a real-time nutrient analysis product with cloud-connected hardware and software that allows farmers to test their own soil samples and see results in real time. We had a great conversation. We learned a lot about his entrepreneurial journey and his relocation to Denmark for his headquarters and what it's like to be a first-time CEO and some interesting opportunities for NorDetect. Okay, as I teased earlier, Henry Gordon-Smith is back for round two on the podcast. Henry was an early supporter of the show, and for that, I'm going to be forever grateful. He was on episode number four of season one. There's a special place in my heart for folks that took a chance on an unknown podcaster, a newcomer to the industry, and I really appreciate Henry doing that. And I actually got to meet him face-to-face at Indoor AgTech NYC, which is always fun for me. We had a nice brief catch-up there and made this appointment for him to come back on the show, and I'm really glad that he did. He came back to share updates at Agritecture and some new stories. We talked a little bit about his recent travel, his nomadic lifestyle, and the importance of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, and how the overall AgSec industry is evolving. He shares his thoughts on the consolidation and hybridization he's seen in vertical farming, agritecture's growth strategy, and why he's so passionate, outspoken, and steadfast in his belief in vertical farming. I love it when guests come back. We get to go a little bit deeper and at times a little more personal as we did in this episode. I really appreciate Henry for being so open about his journey and I know you're going to enjoy this one. Okay, I connected with a couple of fans of the show at the conference that's always near and dear to my heart, and I was uh, giving a couple of folks a hard time, I won't mention them by name, that have been regular listeners of the show and have not left me a rating or a review. So if that message resonates with you, or if you've been listening to the episode for a while and you feel like it's time, then go ahead and do that at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. The best part about it, as you know, I'm going to be reading those out on future episodes. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Henry, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. This episode is brought to you by NetLed. From consultation and technology to services and maintenance, NetLed has the complete package. Whether it's your first vertical farm or you need help scaling an existing operation, NetLed can help. They offer both service and technology business solutions for vegetable and herb producers from pilot phase projects to industrial scale mass production. And with Vera, you have the only true end-to-end turnkey vertical farming solution on the market. Learn more at netled.fi, or you can visit their North American Showcase facility in Calgary, Canada. Henry Gordon-Smith, CEO of Agritecture, thank you for round two on the Vertical Farming Podcast. I am honored to be back. How are you doing, Harry? I'm good. I've just been through some hectic travel. I know you can relate. I think I've been on uh, six planes in the past three weeks. <laughs> some of it was uh, some well-needed R&R. Got to go to an all-inclusive resort, which I'd never been to, and just do nothing. <laughs> That's not bad. Yeah. That's not bad. What's your uh, travel schedule been like? You know, this summer, I've been based in Prague, uh, working with our client, Microsoft and Asahi, and also visiting my parents. Okay. I had a business trip to Singapore for some food systems planning work there and a business trip to Berlin for a conference. But otherwise, I've been trying to also reduce my travel yeah. as much as possible. But I head to Italy on Friday for the Edible Food Summit. Okay. If you had to summarize the past year in terms of, <laughs> I know we caught up at uh, Indoor AgTech and NYC. How do you decide where to go with all the things that are happening? The conferences just keep popping up. I mean, there's stuff in China, India, Dubai. It's just like to even keep up. And, and especially for someone like you who's got your finger on the pulse of what's happening. Like, how are you starting to make the calls to figure out where is the best use of your time? 
Well, first of all, I made a big shift since we last spoke. I'm a nomad now, so I have no apartment. So, you know, one of the reasons I did that was because I don't have to go back to anywhere. So I get to sort of go to a location and stay in a region for longer. So a key part of my travel strategy is to sort of do Europe for X amount of months, do the Middle East for the winter, and do sort of the United States in between as a buffer. I don't do much work in Asia yet, and it's a pretty big trip. So you have to really convince me to go on there and has to be a big enough opportunity. Another consideration is, so I guess the main consideration is, am I in the region already? That's a big consideration for me. And I try to time it around the main events and it's been working pretty well the last two years. Another consideration for me is uh, related to my new team members. I've got a lot of new team members. And so I really want them to have learning opportunities and networking opportunities and help people see that agritecture is so much more than Henry Gordon Smith. We've got an incredible, diverse global team. So I try to send them to a lot more of the events to represent us and work there. How big is the team now? 15 full-time employees. What type of challenge has has that been for you (laughs) as a CEO and not just the leadership, but also like figuring out where to hire the right people so you're scaling appropriately? Well, our services have diversified a lot since when we last spoke. So back in those days, our primary focus was feasibility studies, which was really, you know, the market research and content development, farm design and economic modeling of greenhouses and vertical farms. In recent years, a lot of our work has diversified to include local food system planning. So Christian is one of our newest hires, and he's a local food systems expert, and he's got really interesting experience from food hubs and analyzing food systems. So it's a new complement to the work. So part of the hiring strategy is based on demand. It's a little bit like touch and go. As demand for certain things increase, we'll hire more staff related to that. Another heavy focus for us is sustainability. You've probably noticed that we're trying to push anti-greenwashing messaging, giving people free resources, providing more sustainability analysis to our clients, to our services, as well as our software. So we have sustainability managers that we've hired now onto the team. And another area is new crops, like uh, Justin, who's our one of our newest hires, and his focus is on mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And Brakely is a little bit more on the sustainability side. I got to throw her and Sarah a little bit of the attention as well. They're all amazing. So we hire based on that demand and the diversification of those services. Is that pushed you out of your comfort zone? I like being out of my comfort zone. You know, I think the history of this company is like pun intended, very organic, right? Like yeah, yeah. I started a blog and then people started asking for consulting. I never planned to be a consultant. I mean, I thought I'll start this blog and like, I'll get some like cool interviews from it and, you know, I'll learn some things. And, you know, here we are, like the blog is the brand. So it's not what I expected at all. So I think I've gotten very used to even before agritecture, just adapting, you know, and listening and being agile. It's a key part of who I am as an individual based on my upbringing and sort of what we have at the company. But definitely, I think you should be out of your comfort zone if you want to innovate <laughs> or grow, right? Like, yeah, I don't even know how to answer that. Comfort zone, what? <laughs> well, the fact that you're nomadic, like, uh, I'm just curious because that's being out of your comfort zone, like not having a place to call home. Is that come natural for you, like continuously pushing yourself out of your comfort zone to just to kind of see, you know, where your limits are? I mean, Nomad is kind of extreme. Like I'm not a a complete fan of it. There's pros and cons to it. You know, like the other day I was with some friends and, you know, they were talking about, oh, I had to clean my apartment. I was like, I haven't cleaned an apartment in two and a half years. I haven't vacuumed. You know, I do the dishes in my Airbnb sometimes, but like, that's it. I mean, it's hotels and Airbnb. So there's pros and cons, you know, I don't have any stuff, which 
some people like they miss the memories or like they miss like the objects that remind them of things. I don't have any of that. I just have one bag that I take with me and I try to avoid winter. But I think overall, it, it really, it is taxing, you know, I'm eating meals at random times, you know, that affects your body. I try to stay fit, that it affects my habits related to that. And most importantly, it's very difficult to have a relationship when you're a nomad. You know, you can't really have a family or pets or any of that. But again, there's lots of pros that I think are kind of obvious, being able to say yes to more opportunities, being able to see so many new things. Yeah, being able to really go for it and not be limited by a single place or, you know, a foundation, so to say. But I try to just keep whatever habits I can, like exercise is very important to me, spending time with my family. I also plan trips around visiting my team members uh, in addition to the events and farms and clients. And then so when you think about the growth of agriculture, do you have a growth plan or, or you're just seeing how, how it goes and based where the needs are? Yeah, we have a growth plan, yeah. Harry. Right? <laughs> That's why I'm curious just like how you think about it, because I, I feel like be, having these inputs, these experiences in these different countries, in these different regions, I, I got to think that that colors like your experiences and what you're seeing, what's happening. And then you have these, all these different viewpoints, which, which I think is really helpful. Well, I think, you know, one aspect of the growth plan is us thinking about how can we as a team engage in the projects we want to and make the impact we want to make. And so the first part of, I think, the formulation of that growth plan was, wow, we crossed 200 consultations in 40 countries. Like, pat on our back. Like, that's pretty amazing for a small team in a new sector. I'm really proud of what our team has done collectively on that. But we also talked together and we said, well, how can we do more than that? What does that really look like? Like, what does growth look like beyond that? Your consulting tends to be less scalable. So you're just sort of like constantly chasing and then filling up with more resources than chasing again. So you can grow, but it's not, you know, exponential. In the end, you know, you're also competing with a lot of other aspects that are pushing you to grow, whether it's investment or inflation, et cetera. I want my team to have meaningful projects as well. And I want them to feel like they're innovating. And I think sometimes as people do the same thing for so many years, they start to maybe look elsewhere. So a pretty big part of the growth plan is also how do we do new things? How do we stretch ourselves? How do we make sure we have opportunities to learn? So I think all of that really comes into what I said earlier about new verticals. We constantly are tracking new trends. We have a very active industry trend Slack channel where new trends are suggested by the team and we consider them. For example, agrivoltaics is something we have really a lot of attention on and we're observing and, and analyzing and thinking about our play in that sector as a sort of hybrid solution that has some connections to CEA. But also our new software is a key aspect of our growth, right? We said, well, let's go digital. If we go digital, we can sort of reach so many more. We can help tens of thousands of new farmers, uh, forget 200. So, you know, that's also, I think, part of the growth strategy. Of course, we translate that to the hiring needs we have, the kind of marketing we would need to do to get there, and of course, the financial resources and returns on investment, financial targets that we have. And that feeds into our growth plan. What are some of the things, and maybe diving deeper into Voltaics, that you see in that Slack channel that has you excited? Well, I think Voltaics is really cool because it's this example of how you can help a farmer get more with what they already have. And, you know, the land that a lot of the farmers are on is they're experiencing a lot of challenges, a change of climates. And I think that the ability to sort of shade that and additionally provide revenue. So you, the shading can optimize plant growth. And then you have additional revenue from the, the energy that's produced and sold. 
So that seems like a really exciting opportunity for the farmers. Now, the calculations around that are very familiar to agriculture as far as running scenarios for if you make investment in X, CapEx, you know, what is the return going to be? And also looking at how the sun interacts with the land. Uh, we also look at that with greenhouses and DLI calculations and sun paths and urban areas. So there's some overlap between that. So a sort of opportunity comes in, we say, okay, what percent of this can we do today? And what would we need to do 100% of this later on? So I think that's an exciting one. Mushrooms are uh, definitely on the rise as a crop and something we hear talked about a lot. So we've invested a lot in building a mushroom model, which will be released in the near future on our software. That's additionally a whole new crop and methodology related to that and our new hire that focuses on that and some consulting work that we've done in that area. So that's something we talk about quite a bit. I would say regenerative agriculture is a really big topic on our Slack channel. A lot of team members care about it. We would love to make a bigger impact in it. I think, however, a lot of agriculture's thesis relates to, you know, the business case for agriculture, right? Like we help people reduce risk and plan profitable farms. When it comes to regenerative agriculture, there's just huge gaps in the data that that's available. And a lot of times when you speak to regenerative agriculture leaders, not all the time, but it's like, oh, yeah, you make this investment and then you're going to have a difficult time for five, six, seven years. And then in year seven, the earth will sort of give you back, back this abundance. And I'm like, great. Can I see an economic model for that? Can we look at the yield data? And they're like, oh, no, I mean, it could be this. It could be that. And it could be. So, you know, when I think about my clients and when I think about the new entrance of the space, you know, they need a business case. And so it's really difficult for us to really formulate the agriculture approach when it comes to region ag. I'm not saying we won't do it, but right now it's a little bit challenging. But that topic comes up a lot and we're very, very interested in that. And I think we really believe that there's huge potential for region ag. But we also believe that overall, when it comes to agriculture and the adaptation to the climate crisis, we're really looking at farms increasing their capex, which is not necessarily the region story. So, you know, I think that when people increase their capex, there's new risk and reward, and that makes a meaningful place for an advisory like Agritecture or our software. Are you seeing a different mix in terms of the clients that are coming to you for support? Uh, you know, was it more of the individual farmers early on, or was there an even mix? And how, how has that changed since we last spoke? I think in the early years, you know, there was a lot of distrust of the suppliers. I wouldn't say it's completely gone, but that distrust fed a lot of leads to us as people said, I really don't know what they're saying. I don't know if I can trust them. And they sort of need someone to coach them through that. I don't think that's gone now, but I think that there are certain suppliers which have made, you know, they've proven their success to some extent. There's more examples. They can showcase that success. There's more testimonials. And I think the overall awareness of the basics of, for example, vertical farming that was you know, highly unknown is a little bit more established. And we're also part of democratizing those basics as we try to grow the sector. So, you know, that means that the needs for our feasibility studies, which was our bread and butter in the early years, really relates more to the more advanced, larger, high-tech farms, as opposed to the smaller startup farms that we really began with. So that's a, that's a shift. But what's been really exciting, as I sort of alluded to earlier, is we're doing a lot more work with policymakers. We want the RFP to design Dallas's urban agriculture plan wow. as part of its climate resilience plan. So that's very exciting for us and a, a big dream for me, as people know what I care about when it comes to urban agriculture. And Jeffrey Landau from our team who's leading that project 
with support for Breakly and other team members, is just doing an incredible job balancing you know, all of the understanding that we have of urban agriculture typologies with things like the social context and flooding and various aspects of climate change that, that are going to affect Dallas and other cities. So I think that's really, really exciting. So that division is definitely growing and, and is one we're, we're going to be focusing on. Another big part that I never expected, but I think we're really interested in and, and we do a great job with is due diligence. So all these investors have come into the sector. And when you think about due diligence, it's kind of like a reverse feasibility study to some extent. So we had a lot of tools and data and methodologies for this. So that's been a rapidly growing sector that's been led by our colleague, Javid, who's been able to do that. And so obviously it's very sensitive work. So we have to be very careful with that, but we're able to add a lot of value with our global experience and help investors understand the risks and rewards of all of these exciting farm operations. Another one that's quite new is corporate clients. We had a few of them back in the day, but since we last spoke, we've been working with IKEA, you know, we've worked with large multinationals, utility companies, and guiding them on their strategy in the sector. And it's really exciting working with clients that have enormous amounts of resources to make a difference in the sector and help regionally and internationally. The one I'm most excited about is really the Acai Microsoft project that we're doing in the Czech Republic. Uh, it may not sound like it, but I'm half Czech. So this is, uh, I consider home where I am right now in, in Prague, visiting my parents. But this was our first client in the Czech Republic, and we were awarded AI for Earth grant from Microsoft to help hop farmers adapt to drought conditions, which we know are, are rising around the world and in Europe, to help protect this really vulnerable crop that is in a microclimate that's subject to more risk in the face of climate change. And there's just huge volatility that the farmers are facing. So it's exciting for us to not only work with more outdoor farmers, but to also work with you know, large multinationals and scales in the thousands of hectares as far as the potential impact. What are you seeing or what are the folks saying that are coming from the corporate client side? How has vertical farming come onto their radar? What is it that's causing them to dip their toe in the water or to have these conversations with you that um, is more top of mind for them? Well, there's been this you know, growth of the sector over time and these drivers that have pushed it forward. And, you know, and some of them have been in the early days, like the reduction of cost in LEDs that made it more affordable. That's less of what matters now. What matters now is the sort of longer term wave of climate change that we're seeing more and more reminders that is we're going to be facing the, the realities of it. So that's in the forefront of more investors. ESG investing obviously is also pushing an interest in building portfolios of vertical farming, greenhouses, and let's say climate smart tech. But I think it's also the shocks in the system like the pandemic, which reminded us of the risks to our supply chain, the need to localize, and the war in Ukraine. So, you know, vertical farming, despite its challenges, has really benefited from these multiple shocks in the system and the sort of long-term trend. And that's allowed liquidity in the market and interest from investors and the overall FOMO that creates this rush into the sector to really push, you know, some wind behind the big vertical farming companies to innovate and scale up. And it's been pretty exciting to watch the growth and, you know, constantly new large facilities being built. And I think it's it's really because of those drivers. You recently partnered with uh, Way Beyond on the third annual CEA census. What was that was a really in-depth uh, report, and congrats to the team for putting that together. Were there any things in there that were surprising for you as as you were putting the report together? 
Yeah, you know, it was great to work with Way Beyond again on that. That was our third year doing it. And it's something we we do to really share with the industry. And I want to thank all those that submitted information and, you know, shared their honest perspective. It's great to have, you know, almost 400 farms respond around the world. You know, our focus for this year was uh, greenwashing. And so, you know, this is something I care a lot about. If you see my LinkedIn comments, I will comment if you're greenwashing. And it's something that I'm doing out of love. Because I think the consequences of us greenwashing are really going to bite us in the, you know, later on from an investment perspective and policy perspective, we don't get ahead of it. And so what I found really interesting in the report was that most of the respondents said, I think it was 70% plus said that CEA is subject to excessive greenwashing. So, you know, not only is greenwashing happening, but the people who are actually operating these farms feel like this sector for one reason or the other is subject to excessive greenwashing, really extreme, you know, over dramatization of the impacts across water, energy, food security, et cetera. So again, we took that and we actually created a free marketing guide that anyone can download. So marketers can now look at water, food security, energy, et cetera, and get the ways that they should talk about it that are honest, that they can still market in a creative way without greenwashing. I think it was also a little bit concerning <laughs> that a large percentage of the respondents are not measuring their energy and not measuring their water. So a lot of farms claim 95% less water, and it's kind of this like drinking the Kool-Aid regurgitated term. I'm not saying it's incorrect. It's based on certain academic research. But in reality, when you account for cleaning, when you account for R&D, when you account for whatever you're doing in your farm, your water use, it may not be at that number, especially not in the earlier years. So maybe when you're optimized, you get there. But yet companies feel totally comfortable to market that out there to populations, investors that don't really know about that. And I guess I don't really understand that because I think if you're saving 70% water or if you're measuring your water, which is much better than a lot of farms in general, you are already moving towards a more sustainability impact, right? Sustainability is a process of constant improvement. So measurement is where it begins. So I was just very concerned to see that there was such a gap in measurement across some of the key environmental drivers for the impact of CEA in general. For the benefit of the listener, uh, how would you define or how is greenwashing commonly defined? Yeah, so greenwashing is making a claim of sustainability or environmental impact that is an exaggeration or inaccurate and marketing that claim. So, you know, it can happen in a number of ways. It can happen with something that you're doing, but you're exaggerating it, or it can happen with something you say you're doing that you actually have no data to back it up, which is the most common one, I would say, in this sector. So some exaggerations include, you know, vertical farming is you're going to feed the world. I mean, that's not true, yeah. right? Or it's, it's yeah. directly driving food security. Mm, I think it's indirectly driving food security. It's a part of food security, right? Or the water savings one, you know, or I saw one the other day. You know, and I commented on LinkedIn, you know, it said we are producing food that's lower carbon than outdoor field production. I said, okay, well, you can make that claim, but you better back it up with some data. But it also happens when large multinationals, this is the most common way greenwashing happens, is when large multinationals do something that's perceived as green to distract audiences from what they're doing that's not green. So for example, I won't name who, but a large multinational oil company had sort of like a booth at Expo 2020 where it was like a game and it taught you how to like identify and find electric plugs in your city for your car. 
just totally trying to distract you from the real impact of that brand and that company. And when you win the game, by the way, you win a plastic wrapped keychain, right? So it's like that is an example of, you know, not, yeah. you know, not being green. And it's a real problem and it's going to be an increasing problem in the future. We see a lot of celebrities getting into the sector, starting new sustainable fashion lines or whatever. And I think, you know, the combination of our consumption culture, you know, with the trend of sustainability is something that people care about is very problematic. And I think it's just going to get worse in the future, which is why in, in our little sector, in my little sphere of influence and my team, we're trying to help us be a bit better and get ahead of the negative consequences that are inevitable from that. What are you seeing with the other players coming into this space? Do you see a lot more consolidation? Do you see more acquisitions? You know, what type of activity are you seeing there? Well, you know, my AgFunder article from last year made some pretty bold claims about where the CEA sector is going and had a bit of a focus on vertical farming as sort of the most hyped up, you know, let's say, aspect of CEA. And it is. It's got the most dramatic valuation and raised the most money and has the highest risk reward potentially. So just the cliff notes of that is I applied the Gartner hype cycle to vertical farming. And I make the claim that, you know, the failure of the AeroFarm SPAC and also the drop of the app harvest stock are signals that were, you know, about to, we've passed the sort of peak of inflated expectations and are entering the trough of disillusionment as per the hype cycle. And again, this is not my hype cycle. This is something that's been applied to many, many technologies happen in solar, happens in many, many technologies. So, you know, I think that's still true. I think that in the trough of disillusionment, what's exciting about that stage is that we move from sort of hyped up, you know, beefed up valuations into more of a reality check. Investors become more conservative. Farmers and operators and technology companies have pressure to be more honest. There's overall general awareness of what works, what doesn't. And as a result of that, there's going to be consolidation. So there will be mergers and acquisitions in that stage as valuations drop and as investors see the ability to combine things. I also think, and this is another recent article, that as a result of that, the next stage involves a little bit of hybridization. And we're already starting to see that, which is really exciting. So we're starting to see greenhouse companies invest with vertical farming companies in projects. We're starting to see food growers invest in, in uh, greenhouses, in CEA. We're starting to see vertical farms not being just about growing leafy greens, but about producing products for pharma or for forestry or seed potatoes for outdoor farmers. That is the way we need to think about this, right? This vertical farming is such an exciting technology and it's a piece of the food system. When we hype it up and we separate it and we say, this is the future of food, not a part of the future of food or a part of a sustainable food system, we actually create a problem or we remove ourselves from opportunities to find synergies. And those synergies are really important to get to our objectives of you know, year-round, high-quality, local, pesticide-free, more sustainable food supply in the face of a changing climate. So you know, it might sound scary to some people, but I think it's actually a very exciting stage. Now, there are definitely mergers and acquisitions coming. I can't you know, comment on too much of that, but I think that stage is still just beginning. It's been delayed a little bit. So, you know, I think that the war in Ukraine and, you know, some of these drivers I mentioned have sort of extended the runway that these farms have to deliver. But let's see. Now we've got the energy crisis. It's going to be really interesting to see how vertical farms survive the energy crisis and also greenhouses. There's going to be a lot of adaptation and change. 
Well, I think with all the conversations about the consumption of energy in the vertical farming space, the ones that do make it through or come up with a solution to work through the challenges that are going to be happening in the next couple of months are probably going to be the best ones poised for success in the future. Did you get to connect with uh, the team at Volt Server? I do know the team at Volt Server. I've met them a couple of times. I think that's an example of you know a totally different way of thinking about energy for these farms and starting with energy savings from the beginning, uh, distributed sort of energy savings. So yeah, I think that's interesting. I think, I think we're going to see more examples of that. And I think, again, we're going to see big companies that have raised money buying smaller companies that have found key innovations across light and energy and climate control and automation. Yeah, definitely. I saw that you have the, there's a first annual Generation Fest coming up in at the end of the month in Brooklyn as well. Yes, Generation Fest. <laughs> so Generation Fest is the next edition of Thought for Food's annual event. And for those of you who don't know Thought for Food, it is the most incredible organization run by Christine Gould. It's a global accelerator for youth agriculture solutions. And so it's really focused on an extremely global outlook. So hundreds, thousands of applicants apply to be part of the challenge. And then 10 are selected as finalists. And they're solving different things like food waste, you know, technologies for aquaculture, farmer apps, vertical farms, green, everything. It could be anything in the food system and agriculture itself. They're brought together through a sort of training program to accelerate them, to refine their business plans. I mean, you can imagine if you're in Indonesia, your ability to get Silicon Valley style pitches is so limited. Thought for Food connects you with that whole ecosystem and helps you sort of compete at that level to get meaningful investment and to grow and to learn so much. And these are young teams. I mean, these are 20 year olds in many cases. So it's really inspiring, super energetic. Anyway, the, the, the event every year is like essentially the finalists like pitching, but it's way more than that. It's like a party, there's morning raves, there's food tastings, there's live chef demos. There's gonna be choreographers this year. There's gonna be musicians. And Generation Fest is sort of like an adaptation of that for the Brooklyn edition, yeah. which I'm so excited because I lived in Brooklyn for so many years. And I had the pleasure of co-hosting the last two years, and I'll be co-hosting co again in Brooklyn. And Team Agritecture will be there, and it's happening September 30th, and it's just it's just amazing. I mean, I can't talk about it now, but it's <laughs> event every year. Yeah. You can imagine how many events I go to. It's my favorite event every year. I should probably speak a little bit less fast, but that's the energy of Generation <laughs> It's just out of this world. Would any of that be available remotely for folks that can't make it in person? It's really an in-person experience this year. There'll be definitely clips. If you want to experience it remotely, I recommend, you know, you watch Generation Food, which is the documentary that we filmed and produced in the year where COVID prevented us from actually having the teams come together. So what we did is we gave, uh, they gave the teams cameras and they produced their own pitches. And then we go through the pitches and we have the judges live and, and it's a really amazing documentary. And you can watch that on Vimeo, just search, you know, Generation Food and you'll find it. You can you know, get a similar experience if you can't make it in person. Well, if the level of your enthusiasm is any indication of what people can expect, <laughs> then they should probably make it a point to try to get there in person if they can. Uh, so it looks like it's in line with uh, Ag Tech Week as well. Yeah. So Ag Tech Week, you know, which is an annual event and is sort of getting its uh, back on its feet post-COVID is, is going to be part of, like GenFest is, is sort of the final event at Ag Tech Week. And so that's happening, I think, I guess, five days before 
GenFest that week it's going on. It's a great chance to network and meet people. There's online aspects of Ag Tech Week this year and some in-person aspects. And, and so, I've just been keeping tabs of the events that you guys are promoting. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Edible Planet Summit too, coming up. So yeah, on Friday, I go to Edible Planet Summit. That's like the unconference organized by Sharon Chitone, who's also like, I think, part of this overall community. And, you know, what she's doing is she's really trying to help Umbria, which is, I think, a little bit of an underestimated province in Italy, showcase its food and regenerative agriculture aspects, but also not exclude the tech players uh, like CEA. So we've got people like Naom coming, we've got large corporates, we've got Regen Farmers coming, we're going to be doing local experiences, eating food, and I hope uh, visiting vineyards. <laughs> and, you know, we're doing all of that. And, you know, it's a really incredible gathering of minds, a select group you had to apply. And I'm running the Controlled Environment Agriculture and Urban Agriculture Workshop at that event in collaboration with Jan Vestra from Priva. But overall, it's, it's going to be a really amazing time. And I'm really looking forward to that. I leave on Friday for beautiful Italia. Is that an opportunity for farmers or industries that may not have understood the potential for vertical farming to become more aware of what's possible? It's all about cross-pollination. So it's like, and I think that's also similar to Generation Fest, right? It's, it's not limited to, it's not a vertical farming event. And so I think going back to the hybridization and synergies and collaboration, I think that there's way too much polarization in general in society, but we're seeing an agriculture manifest. You know, there was a regen farmer that I really respect. He's done incredible work and he posted the Edible Planet Summit event and he said, oh, look at this, a bunch of corporates getting together to talk about the future of tech and food. And I was like, dude, like, you don't know that there's no regen farmers going. Everyone is invited. You just have to apply. Why don't you apply and like, see if you, why don't you come? Yeah, yeah. Like, why don't you join the dialogue? Yeah, yeah. Like, I get why there's a divide. I just don't get why increasing the divide is the strategy that makes sense. Like it just doesn't, if your mission is a stronger food system, you have to be at the table with the players, with the resources, and you have to accept that in this changing climate, there is going to be some kind of technology that's going to play a role. You can't just be totally anti-technology. And if you are, prove it, like be part of the debate, you know? So you know, I, we sort of had an online discussion <laughs> on LinkedIn, you know, we ended up coming to an agreement. So that was fine. But, you know, it's intended to be diverse. Do you find yourself in the role of a spokesperson more often than not in these conversations or just because of like, you know, your experience with all the, the different facets that you've, you know, had a role in conversations with with agriculture and just personally as you educate yourself more in this space? Just do you just see that as a natural byproduct that you, you've become more of a, a spokesperson for the industry in a good way? I think I've always been quite outspoken, and I think some people like that and some people don't. But in the end, the people I care about are the ones that are craving knowledge and have a passion like I do and are looking for, you know, a voice that encourages them. People are afraid to say that's greenwashing. People are afraid to say, actually, I don't think that's going to be profitable. People are afraid to say that's hype, you know, but people are also afraid to sometimes say, that's awesome because of this specifically. And we need more of this. And I think that shyness that exists, maybe it's a bit of imposter syndrome that some people feel, but in some ways I feel like I respect people 
And I, I there were mentors early on that, you know, were outspoken and, and they said their point of view. And I think that I've embraced that. And I think my mom is really a, a key aspect of that. You know, I, she, she says, you know, if, if you're not branding yourself, someone else is branding you. So using your voice is a way of taking ownership over your identity. And I've met so many people in the years, and I'm sure you have with your podcast too. And they're like, wow, you know, I met my co-founder because I saw their company on your blog that you featured. I mean, we feature all kinds of companies for free, right? We featured them and, you know, we met and we joined their company. I mean, that has happened to me, I mean, 50 times. And I've been doing this for 10 years and 12 years now. So, you know, it's added up. So that's huge. Like it's a huge recharge to it. So whatever the naysayers may feel, I'm far beyond that now because I've had so many more examples of the positive impact of sharing your voice. And so I don't consider myself the spokesperson. I don't like like a label, you know, like that. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, if it helps people listen, if they get value of what I'm saying, sure, call me what you want. <laughs> Do you spend a lot of time thinking, like stepping back and seeing what you've built and, and thinking about like, if you, this is where you thought you'd be in, in 10 years or, you know, when you think about things like mission and purpose, you know, sometimes it's hard when you're in it to look back, but like, uh, do you ever find the time to do that? I am, you know, COVID was really hard for our company and hard for me personally. And I in response to it, I just threw more energy into my work and I, I really lost myself in, a, I think, an unhealthy way. And I think I'm not the only person in COVID that did that. And so I think I've, I've been really like lost in that. I think it's a survivor thing in me when I feel like my livelihood and my community, in this case, my employees are a threat. I just get into survivor mode and you get lost in that. You know, it's sort of like when you're hungry and you can't think about anything else but food. So you lose a lot of yourself and you lose a lot of uh, the priorities that matter. Five weeks ago, I was in a car accident that was quite traumatic and changed my perspective on things. So I think sometimes things happen. And now I wake up every morning and I take more time to, I'm not a person who meditates, but I take more time to just be thoughtful. And I, I just start, wow, I'm alive wow, I can see, you know, my body moves, you know, I can do what I want today, really. Like sometimes you feel like you can't do what you want, but really you have the choice and the power. And so gratitude is something that I'm just trying to practice a lot more. And that gives me time to have a, a step back and have perspective. I think from a strategic perspective, you know, we do take the opportunity to take a step back. Our mission has updated from, you know, trying to empower others to develop feasible urban agriculture projects to really empower and accelerate the transition to climate smart agriculture. So we're broadening out our mission far beyond urban agriculture, far beyond CEA to help make a wider impact. And that's why we're looking at things like agrivoltaics and regenerative agriculture. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's two sides to it. There's just making sure you create space to have gratitude and have perspective on how lucky you are, how lucky I am. That's one piece of it that just lets you open your mind. And the other piece is, you know, obviously scheduling specific strategy sessions with your team to challenge assumptions. Who are you looking to or who are you motivated by when it comes to leaders who are in your position or maybe where you think you want to take agriculture? Wow, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people I like, like I mentioned, like Christine Gould is a big inspiration to me. But I think like me, you know, she gets so lost in, in the mission and the passion and she cares so much about it. That is a tough one. I really, I don't, if I have like a really... 
Oh, that's so disappointing. I don't know if I have a really strong answer for that. I mean, you know, there's one of our investors, Esther Dyson, is someone I've always like aspired to be like because she travels the world, which is something I've always liked. She invests in amazing companies. She swims a kilometer every day. You know, she likes to live life well and she just inspires me. You know, she's sort of like this real trailblazer. And I met her when I was very young. I actually proposed to her, I think, when I was like 10 years old. I was like, oh, that's amazing. Apparently. And, you know, and she's just grown so much as like a mega like investor. And, and her, her comments are so smart and she's so wise. So, I mean, I think if there's anybody who's been a role model that I've looked up to for a, a long time, I would say it'd be Esther Dyson. Yeah. You know, one of her best pieces of advice is always make new mistakes. I like that. You know, encouraging risk, encouraging failure, but don't repeat them. Yeah. So inversing the the mentorship model, are there opportunities? Are, are you seeing people that are, are providing spaces or opportunities for young folks coming into the space who want to learn more, who are excited, who are seeing this as a, as a new career? Whereas, you know, a couple of years ago, this wasn't even on their radar. It's not something they were thinking about to become farmers or even consultants in this space. It seems like there's a lot of opportunities. And I, and I don't know that there's a lot of guidance for people, new young folks in the space who want to learn more. It's really tough. You know, even for me, it's tough. I used to really spend a lot of time talking to people on Instagram and on LinkedIn, young people, because I, I was one of those people. So like I, I've had to stop that more, right? Like yeah. I can't do that. And I wish there were more resources for them. What I will say is part of when I stopped doing that so often, because I have a team to provide for and, and investors to deliver on and a mission to execute. But I wrote an article called, I want to be an agritech. And I, I go through my story and I give three specific steps that anyone breaking to the sector needs to deliver on. I think I spoke about them on your last podcast, to be honest, but that article is there. People can read it and they can get those steps. In addition to that, you know, our software now has online classes. So if you invest $99, you can get, you know, honestly, an amazing jumpstart to your knowledge and you'll be so much smarter when you're in the room and at events and in interviews for the sector. It's a, I just really think it's a good investment because you learn economics, crops, technologies, you know, business models, all of that. You, you get to see how my team speaks, how people that had no experience in it and are now considered experts in it, you know, got there and through that, how they talk about it. There's amazing activities. So I think that's another resource. And then of course, I think there are workshops, you know, even like Amhydro has some workshops to learn about. You need to get hands-on experience wherever you are, there's probably some kind of hydroponics, aquaponics workshop now. And that's one of my key tips is just getting the hands-on experience. There could always be more, but you know, the business case for that needs to be clear. And I, I think some of that responsibility is on policy and academia. Yeah. And I think the resources that you provide on the site are incredibly helpful. We'll be sure to make, to have all those links in the show notes. It'll probably be helpful for me to do a refresher on them as well. You've always got webinars coming up. You've got something coming up on uh, October 4th for Europe's vertical farming market, the opportunities that are going to be happening there. So I yeah. think I, <laughs> I encourage everyone to just, I mean, as long as they're subscribed to your newsletter, they're going to stay on top of everything that's happening in the space. I know we're getting close to wrapping up, but what's a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? <laughs> you know, I had an investor the other day, and this is being very open, but I, I have a new investor and the investor said, how many months until you're going to be a unicorn? And I was like, wow, you know, like, because my journey has been very bootstrap, right? Like I went from blogger to consultant, you know, to raising money. And now we have our software. We're trying to scale up our impact. But again, it's like this 
journey was not the journey I imagined. I mean, even in the sector was not where I imagined. So like I see those 10 years, understand it's like 10 years. And I'm like, I've been so focused on revenue and being a profitable company and being an honest company. You know, I don't think about like, it's not the thing I wake up every morning, like I want to be a unicorn. I don't want to be, you know, the next head of WeWork or those things. I mean, that's not what investors really want to hear, right? And I think that the, the thing that I've had to ask myself is, you know, where is the balance between thinking big from an investor perspective and actually making a really big impact? Like, am I limiting myself by focusing on being too real? You know, because I'm very conscious of trying to encourage and trying to be somewhat visionary, but I wouldn't say I like try to say things that are, even my article, right? It's like, I'm looking a step ahead, but I'm not looking five or 10 steps ahead in what I'm writing. I'm not talking about, you know, the Mars or the moon or, or, you know, what it's going to be in a post-apocalyptic world. Like, I'm not thinking about those things. I'm thinking about things that are relatively near in the future because I feel like I can have control over those things. I feel like I can make an impact. And that's my experience. So the challenge has been, you know, and my investor said, I sort of said, well, you tell me, you've like funded unicorns before. So you tell me. And he says, Henry, you're a unicorn the minute you believe you're a unicorn. Ooh. You know, and so I'm like, okay, boom. Like, this is like one of those, like, you know, like things I remember forever. So I put on Slack, I'm like, I am a unicorn. I wrote down, like, I am a unicorn. And I'm just like trying to have a unicorn mindset, you know, so that I think bigger from the impact perspective. So that's been the recent thing that's sort of been challenging me and itching at me. You know, it's so funny about those conversations when people who are like moving into like a wealth mindset, they feel like they don't belong in the space. And one of the things they tell you is like, if you go into a store that's like for the uber wealthy and you feel uncomfortable there, like, oh, I don't belong here or this is, I can't afford this. Or you start to tell these stories, you're, you're basically conditioning your mind to say like, I'm not deserving to be in this space. And I think part of that exercise of, of having you say that I am the unicorn, it just in your energy already just shifts because then you start to think, well, if I was, there's nothing to say that unicorns are unethical or unicorns are just trying to get money. And, and then you think about the power and it seems like that's your thought process. Like what could I do better or who could I serve? Who can I serve? Who's not being served by being at that level? That's absolutely right. And it's that mindset shift. It's similar to the gratitude mindset and the power of that because fear is, is your enemy, Yes, you know, and, and I experienced so much fear and despair and survival that, you know, I, I got lost in, in something, you know, post COVID and, and the consequences of that. And I'm getting out of that. And as a team, we're getting out of that. And that mindset of gratitude and unicorn mindset is really helpful for just exactly the reasons you said. It's a really good advice to young people listening. You have to balance it though, right? Like you can see those people who are like way too out there, right? And that's like, you know, their first pitch is like, we are a billion dollar company. <laughs> you know? So it's really good discussion. It's a really good thing to think about. And I think I would guess based on the conversation we've had and the fact that you're there with your parents and you talk about the influence of your mom, you know, I get the sense that you come from a really well-grounded background, a really solid upbringing. So that, that gives you that stability. So you don't go 
head in the clouds and you don't become like the WeWork founder <laughs> who people people don't want to talk about or have as, as an inspiring model. And so I, I think the fact that you approach this with humility, you know, little things like, you know, thankfully making it through that accident, you know, relatively unscathed, but giving you a new appreciation for life, having that gratitude. You know, we never know where the, the lessons in life are going to come from and who, where the inspirations are going to come from for the basis for the decisions we make in the future. But oh, I think they just come incrementally over time. And then I think that's what's, what's been, you know, present for me during this conversation, just watching, you know, the work you do you know, from afar and just seeing how, what inspiring spokesperson you are for this industry. So I, I appreciate you sharing that story and being vulnerable with uh, my listeners as well. Well, I want to share it because I think it's, you know, we're human beings and I'm a human being and, and like, it's just so, I am humbled by what my parents have given. I'm privileged in that sense. But I think it's also important to know that I grew up in a, a state of constant change, you know, growing up in Hong Kong, Tokyo, Germany, Czech Republic, Russia, wow. Utah for a little bit, Moscow, Russia, where I graduated high school, US, Canada. You know, I never had a home. Mm -hmm. I really never had a home. And so for me, home is family. Like wherever family is, that is home. Yeah. And so I feel such a recharge when I'm around people that understand my unique experience as a sort of global uh, citizen, so to say. And my parents really know that because basically designed it, you yeah. know, they, they built that life. So that's a big part of it. And I just feel like I owe so much to them that I want to spend much time with them. And this accident, life is just so short. It, you know, I've written back to people that I hurt in the past where I, I didn't behave well, and I'm just trying to let go of any of uh, those negative feelings and try not to space for that. Um, so yeah, I mean, thanks for creating the space on the podcast to talk about this, because, you know, it's not just about LED lights and lettuce, <laughs> it's, it's about life, you know, yeah. it's about the journey. And, you know, it, it's a hard journey. So if we're not humble, and if we're not open, I don't know what the point is. Even though it does look like you're in a vertical farm right now with that light. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, it's because the sunset and the LED lights. Yeah, this this hotel has some mood lighting for sure. Or yeah, or you're yeah, or you're in the Virgin Airways uh, waiting area or something like that. So. I'm actually on an airplane right now. You know, I'm like flying. Over I'm trying to think like the unicorn. I'm yes, like, yes, I'm yes. In an airplane. Yeah. Private jet. Yeah. Well. You know, it's a sustainable fuel. <laughs> well, Henry, thanks again for coming on. I'm glad we got to meet in person in New York City. I'm looking forward to the next time we get to chat and have a drink together. Truly inspiring what you do. I appreciate, again, you coming back on. So agritecture.com for folks to learn more. And then anything else that's coming up event-wise that I haven't mentioned that you want to point people to? No, check out the website. If you want to check out the software, you know, that's design.agritecture.com, but you can also find that there. And just uh, keep an eye out for some big news coming soon from Agritecture. Yeah. Thanks so much, Harry. Your podcast is awesome. Best <laughs> farming podcast out there. Thank it's you so much. So much. Thank you to the sponsors, of course, as well. Yes. It's so exciting to share all this news. And I know I've received many messages from the previous one. So I'm also grateful to you for amplifying certain voices in the sector. So keep it up. And we'll be sure to share this episode with your parents as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your time. Take care. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks again to Henry for coming on the show and sharing his really touching and emotional story. As always, full show notes are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. It's not something I take lightly. And I, again, appreciate Henry for for putting his trust in me and in this show and for being an early supporter of the show and continuing to come back on and share the updates that are happening with agriculture. 
As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Special thanks to our season title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking for a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. And best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. And that's something I got to see live and in person these two days at AgriMe. You can learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co. And as a reminder, if you are enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Tune in next week for my conversation with another return guest, Allison Koff of Ayuno. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.